0: This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Matthew.
1: So Jesus made distinct claims about his identity and his divinity, that he is that he is one with God, in essence, and nature, that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, one God, three personalities, so we can't all be right. If what Islam teaches and Mormonism teaches and Jehovah's Witness teaches, and then what the Bible teaches, we can't all be right. And again, there's the law of non-contradiction in logic. You cannot have the uh, two opposing views of the same thing,
0: Today, Pastor Gary will share with you about the triunity of God. God is triune, meaning He is made up of three individual parts. Each part is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. While each part of the Trinity is fully God, they all serve different purposes. God the Father didn't go down to earth, become a man, and die for the sins of the world. God the Son did that. And God the Son isn't known as the helper to all believers. The Holy Spirit is. Each part is part of the greater whole. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Matthew, chapter 16, with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection.
1: Well, we left off last week uh, somewhat in the middle of chapter 16. Jesus has taken his disciples some uh, distance from the region of the Sea of Galilee to the, um, over the Golan Heights into the city of Caesarea Philippi, where he will have this conversation with his disciples about who do men say that I am. And they give, this, uh, they give the talk of the street. Some say Elijah, some say Jeremiah, some say the prophet of old, some prophet of old, some John the Baptist, you know, there's a lot of talk about who you are. And then Jesus turns it to them specifically, who do you say that I am? Peter makes this great profession of faith. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus says, that's beautiful, that's true. You're not bright enough to get that on your own. My Father in heaven revealed that to you. And, uh, and you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. We talked about how even today we have to be equipped in our faith enough to understand that there will be a variety of views about who Jesus is in our culture as well. Who do people say that Jesus is? Uh, some would say that he is a prophet inferior to Muhammad. Some say that he is the spirit brother of Lucifer. Some say that he is created as the archangel Michael. But Islam and... Mormonism and Jehovah's uh, Witnesses—they will differ from what the Bible says specifically about who Jesus is. That He is the Christ, the Son of the Living God. He is God in flesh. He said uh, to His own disciples, "If you have seen Me, you have seen the Father." He says in John chapter ten, "I and the Father are one." That that Greek word for one is hen, h-e-n. It means one in essence and nature. When He was speaking about who he is and his identity. It tells us in the gospels, in in John's gospel, that uh, some bystanders wanted to pick up a rock and stone him. And uh, he, he says, for which miracle are you about to stone me? And they said, not for any miracles, but because you, a mere man, claim to be God. So Jesus made distinct claims about his identity and his divinity, that he is that he is one with God, in essence, and nature, that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, one God, three personalities. So we can't all be right. If what Islam teaches and Mormonism teaches and Jehovah's Witness teaches, and then what the Bible teaches, we can't all be right. And again, there's the law of non-contradiction in logic. You cannot have the uh, two opposing views of the same thing, uh, and and both be right. Both could be wrong, but both cannot be right when they are diametrically opposed. And so we have to understand what the Bible says about the identity of Jesus, and we have to be equipped in our faith enough to communicate that to a world that needs to really know who Jesus is, that includes loving Muslims and loving Mormons and loving Jehovah's Witnesses and telling the truth and being equipped enough in our faith to begin to share Scripture with them in such a way that they would understand who Jesus really is uh, from his own lips, as recorded by eyewitnesses of the first century. Not because golden tablets were found in Palmyra, New York, that have never been seen only by Joseph Smith, and that, the, that there's a whole other book that declares the identity of Jesus. No, 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 from the lips of Jesus and the eyewitness of the account of Jesus, first century, recorded in Scripture, and this is what we have before us. Now, Jesus turns there and he says, upon this rock I will build my church. We talked about how that that scripture will differ from what the Roman Catholic Church teaches on this issue. And then, in fact, Jesus was not saying he builds the church on Peter, but he builds the church on the profession of Peter. It is a larger, greater profession than Peter himself, though his name means rock. When Jesus speaks about upon this rock I will build my church, it is a different word. It is a feminine word that cannot modify a masculine name. And, he's, and it's a word that also means bolder versus little pebble, which is what Peter's name mean, means. So the bolder, the greater meaning of the profession of faith that Peter gave was, in fact, what the church will be built upon, not Peter himself, but the profession of faith that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And thus the church will be built upon that profession of faith. And we're here today because of that great profession of faith. And you can be a part of the church, not by membership, but be, but by profession, that's how you belong to the church. People want to know sometimes, how do we join cornerstone Javel? You, you join the church. There's not a membership. You don't sign a, a document. You join the church because you, you put your faith and trust in Jesus. And by that profession, you are now a member of the church. You are a part of the church. You're part of God's family in the larger sense. So uh, that's where we left off. And then he says something interestingly in the heels of that whole conversation in verse 20. It says there in Matthew 16, verse 20, he says, Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ, which is not obviously a pattern for us. I mean, you know, it's not like, well, if you know Jesus as your Savior, don't tell anyone. That's not a pattern. Everything's in Scripture, are not always patterns, but they are always principles. We have to be able to discern the difference. The reason why Jesus said to his disciples, now don't tell anyone that I'm the Christ, is because he did not prematurely want to blow his cover, if you will. That Jesus was operating by a divine timetable, and he was sensitive to the will of the Father and the timing of the Father, and, and that his true identity would be known in due time. But for the moment, his disciples were to understand this. Jesus was starting first with his own immediate disciples, his apostles, that they would understand and learn who he was, and then from this the church will be birthed when we get to Pentecost from these early disciples. There's only 120 in the upper room, and then the whole church is birthed from this, but it's based on this profession. So Jesus said, don't tell anyone just yet, for his time has not yet come. It's not time for him to be revealed as the Messiah uh, globally. This is just a a moment here where he's informing his own disciples who he is, that they would understand it, that they would know. So that's why he says that. Now, verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life this isn't making sense to them. I mean, he's just, he's just confirmed that Peter's profession is true, that he is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And now he's telling them, by the way, I'm about to be crucified. I'm going to be killed. So because this doesn't make sense, Peter then, verse 22, took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. <laughs> I mean, Peter's a character, isn't he? I mean, this is the guy who he's rebuking Jesus. That takes some chutzpah. You know what I'm saying? You're rebuking the son of God to his face. No, you won't. I mean, wow. And Jesus, in response, turned to him and said in verse 23, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men." Now, Peter is just a picture of every single one of us. Because here Peter goes from this moment of just divine inspiration. You were the Christ, the son of the living God. And the next moment, Jesus is saying to him, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. I thought a moment ago I was like divinely inspired. Not now. <laughs> you know how, how quickly things have shifted here. And Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. Now, it's because Satan is manipulating Peter to say this kind of a thing. It's not that Peter is possessed here. It's just that Peter is, being, is more tuned into his own flesh. He has in mind the things of men. And he's, being, he's a little tool in the hands of Satan at this moment. And he doesn't have the divine inspiration that he had just a few verses ago. So this, this speaks about every single one of us. Sometimes you can be walking in the spirit and you know it. And other times you're just walking in the flesh and you're wondering, how can this be? Well, because there's a conflict within us. There's a war that wages and there's this. Our spirit is redeemed and regenerated when we come to trust Christ, but we still have a carnal, fleshly nature, and sometimes we're more tuned into the things of the flesh than we are the things of God. And you, you could usually know the difference for yourself, don't you? I know the difference for myself. When you're walking in the spirit and when you're walking in the flesh, Peter obviously perhaps didn't know, and so Jesus has to point it out for him to, to him that you are in fact being used by Satan right now. Get behind me, Satan! And I remember, and I'll just. You know, this is a, a story I'm, I'm not proud of. If I knew yours, I'd share yours. But I'll share my own. Uh, but I remember Terry and I hadn't been married very long, and we had gotten in, we were in the middle of an argument, which actually, you know, Christians don't argue. It was, it was intense fellowship, let's put it that way. <laughs> So we were in this moment of intense felt, no, we were arguing, all right, and, and I remember just in the middle of it feeling, this is just spiritual warfare, it's nonsense, and so out loud, looking at her, I said, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> it was not a happy day. Uh, I would never advise you to do that, by the way, and I learned that that was a very stupid thing to do. Um, because uh, I meant one thing, I meant like, this is just Satan, this is just ridiculous, get behind me, Satan. But if, if you're going to say that, first of all, pray it, and if you happen to say it, look another direction, all right? And uh, so, you know, but it, here, here's, this is Peter saying this, and, and then Jesus responds by, by letting him know, you, you are being manipulated by Satan right here. Now, verse 24, then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. All right, so let's back up here. Notice Jesus talks about if you want to follow him, you're going to have to deny self. Now, there's a difference between self-denial and the denial of self. A lot of us can you know, be in self-denial, I don't mean that in a psychological sense. I just mean, you know, you can de- deny yourself chocolate. You can deny yourself, uh, you know, um, smoking. You can deny yourself drinking. You can, de- you can deny yourself a lot of things, and you can still be very, very unspiritual. So this is not... This is not self-denial. It is the denial of self. It is getting to a place where you die more and more to self. And this is a daily thing. This is not like... One day you wake up and you are just dead to self and you are just now this saint of God. This is an, a lifetime journey of dying to self every day. And if you're gut honest, there are times you think, oh, yeah, I died to that. And then about a month later, you realize no, it's not dead and you have to keep dying and dying and dying. But that's what Jesus means here when he says that if you want to follow me, you have to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. I mean, again, the cross was that emblem, as the old hymn says, of suffering and shame. And they understood in their day that the cross was symbolic of death, a horrible death. The Romans didn't invent crucifixion, the Persians did, but the Romans perfected it. And for Jesus to be using this terminology would have awakened them and quickened them. They would have realized, what is he talking about? He's talking about a a crucifying of self, a death to self, a dying to our flesh, that there might be less of us and more of God's Spirit so we could live for His glory and not for our own glory. That we could live for the glory of God and not for self-satisfaction or self- selfish ambition, but, but dying to self and crucifying the flesh and recognizing those sinful things in our lives and confessing it as sin and then starving those things that have an appetite and, and recognizing that as people of flesh... You can know Christ as your Savior, but still have to deal with this other nature that we still have until the day we die, and then we're separated from this body of flesh, that is constantly going to be warring with your soul. And Paul talks about how the things I want to do, I don't do in Romans chapter 7, and the things I don't want to do, that's what I do. He says, oh, what a wretched man I am, but thanks be to God who gives me the victory through Jesus Christ. And that victory comes by daily battles. You know, in a bigger sense, Jesus has won the war, but there will, be, there will be smaller battles along the way where we are constantly having to reckon with our flesh, die to self, take up our cross daily, and follow Jesus. That is a decision. And thankfully, we have his spirit to empower us as, um, as we so desperately need his power over our uh, weak flesh at times, but this is what Jesus calls us to. This is, if you want to be a disciple of Christ, we have to take up our cross. In other words, we have to die to self, and we have to follow him. And, and Jesus, in verse 25, he says, For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. Now, I find it interesting in the Bible, and there are many, and I'm only going to highlight five for the sake of time, but there are many great paradoxes in the Bible. And this is one of them, taken right here from Matthew 16 25. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. In other words, that you're going to find life through losing it. It's a great paradox. And paradox is actually from Greek words para doxa. Para means uh, besides, and doxa mean, means thought or opinion. A paradox is something besides the conventional opinion of the day. It, it, it seems, it sounds to our ears, contrary. It is, it is, it is uh, counter, counterintuitive to think about gaining life by dying. So there are many paradoxes in the Bible, and this is one of them. I'm just going to highlight five. But but as we as we read this, you know, consider what Jesus is trying to say here. Matthew 16:25. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. The more you want of yourself the less room there is for Jesus to really be Lord. But if you really want to have life and fullness of life, then there has to be a greater surrender, a death to self, that you might really enjoy the life that he intends for you to have. So many people go around using this expression when they're kind of at their wits end. You've used it. I've heard it. We've all used it or heard it. It's this whole thing. I'm going to lose it. I feel like I'm going to lose it. I'm going to lose it. Yeah. And when you finally do, then you'll get it. When we finally lose it, and we get to the end of ourselves, then we'll really be able to experience the life that Jesus intends. We have to die to self. We're going to find life through death. That's one paradox. Let me just highlight a couple other with you. Here's another one. Exaltation comes through humility. Exaltation comes through humility. This is what Luke 14:11 says. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. That's what Jesus said. If you promote self, God will humble you. If you humble yourself, God will promote you. It's a great paradox, but, it, but it's true. And again, this is counterintuitive to the way that the world teaches. The world teaches you want to get ahead, you promote self. You make self the center, and, and you exalt self. And that works to some degree, I suppose, in the corporate world, you know, however somebody advertises himself, promotes themselves, and, you know, makes himself known, and, and then maybe they'll climb the corporate ladder perhaps a little more easily because, you know, they put their, themselves out there. And there's nothing wrong with, you know, if you own a business, advertising your business, you know, let's not take things to extreme. But what Jesus is saying is, goes to the heart. And the heart is that the more we want to exalt self and we have pride about self and we promote self, then God will humble us. But when we take on a position of humility and when we, when we uh, deal with pride in our own hearts and, and when we you know humble ourselves before God, then he will exalt and he will promote and he will use and he will open doors. And so it's a great paradox, but it is truth. And Jesus said this. Number three, here's another paradox. There's strength through weakness. In Second Corinthians 12.10, Paul says, that is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You hear that paradox? He's like, you know, when, when I am weak, when I realize my own limitations, when I get to the place where I've been stripped of self, hardships, I'm and difficulties, and trials, when I am weak, then that's when I understand and experience the Lord's strength, his strength in me and through me. So there's strength through weakness. Number four, receiving through giving is what the Bible teaches as well. It's another great paradox, but Jesus said in Luke six thirty eight, give and it will be given to you. A good measure pressed down, shaken together and running over will be poured into your lap for with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. What does the world teach? The world teaches hold on to it, get as much as you can, accumulate it, and then and then hold it tight, tight-fisted. That's the way the Bible, or rather, the world teaches, but the Bible teaches the great paradox, which is be open-handed, be generous, be giving, and then you will receive more than you could possibly give. You cannot outgive God. So the more generous you are, and the more you give, And the more you serve, the more God will repay and reward in ways that sometimes are like kind or not even tangible ways. But God does this wonderful thing of blessing us, and and He blesses us in abundance. You can't outgive God, but if you're tight-fisted, if you're just closed off, if you're stingy, if you're not generous, you're going to always be trying to make ends meet. It's amazing, though, and some of you have learned this as you've grown in your life with Christ, That the more generous you are, though you look at your checkbook and you go, I'm not sure I'm going to make ends meet. And yet you still operate in this spirit of generosity and you're going to honor God and you're going to love God and you're going to be generous to people and generous with tithes and offerings and however God would lay it on your heart to bless people and missionaries and ministries around the world and, and just serving people, loving people in a generous way. And how wonderful God will take care of you in ways that are just amazing. And and why is that? Because of this great paradox. But it's truth. God says if you're generous, you will receive. And uh, so there's receiving through giving. And then finally, just to highlight one more, but there's many more through the Bibles. It it makes for a great Bible study. uh, But there's greatness through leastness. Greatness comes through leastness. Jesus would say in Luke 9, 48, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me, for he who is least among you, he is the greatest. That sounds, again, so counterintuitive. People want to be great, want, want everybody to know how great they are. And Jesus says, no, if, if you really want uh, greatness then you should really just focus on being the least that you can and then let God do what he wants to do. And uh, he says, who is least among you is really the one esteemed by heaven as being greatest. It's not positions and titles and notoriety and fame. That's, That's not what we should strive for. Though if God opens that door for you and gives you that kind of a platform, then use it for his glory. But it's the idea of God is most glorified when we are just least and humble and servant and just generous and loving and, and all these things that, that uh, the Bible teaches uh, and then as a result, uh, God does his wonderful work in response Hope
0: is an open ocean, jump in and you'll find the cornerstones, your connection run towards your new life. Thanks for joining Pastor Gary today for this study in the Gospel of Matthew on Cornerstone Connection. If you'd like to hear this teaching again or explore additional messages, visit cornerstoneconnection.cc and click on Teachings. You can download our mobile app, too, while you're there. It's under On The Go. Do you live in or near Leesburg, Virginia? If so, we want to invite you to join us for church at Cornerstone Chapel. We're meeting each Sunday in person at 8:30 and 11:45, as well as on Wednesdays at 7 p.m. CornerstoneConnection.cc is the place to get all the information you need, along with directions to our campus. You can also see what's going on during the week and what Cornerstone Chapel offers in the way of small groups, youth ministry, and more. And you can meet the staff. If you're not able to join us in person right now, that's okay. We're live streaming each Sunday and Wednesday service at cornerstoneconnection.cc. If you have any questions for us, or if you'd like to share a prayer request, please connect with us at prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. That's prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. Well, that's all we have time for today. Thanks for joining us to study Matthew. And we hope you'll tune in again to learn more about Jesus. That's right here on Cornerstone Connection.
1: They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know